You're listening to The Reservoir, a discussion with subject matter experts about the geopolitics, economics, and the technology surrounding current production, reserves replacement, carbon capture, and the energy transition. Now here are your hosts, Jim Watkins and Hunter Holtschapel. Welcome back, everybody. And today we have Hunter, my partner in crime. How's it going, Hunter? Jim, that's going well. How are you? Yeah, it's been great. I've been living the dream on vacation and just getting back and getting into it. So it's good. And I'm excited to be back for another episode of The Reservoir for sure. So, hey, tell us before we go any further, tell us where are we today? Where are we recording today? Jim, that's a good question. We are at the Richmond campus here on Richmond Ave in Houston, right on the edge of the energy corridor. In this building, we have our exploration team. We have some digital teams. We have our performance live center, just the building next door, which is where they monitor all of our remote jobs and a few sales teams. So pretty diverse crew here on this Richmond campus. Wow, the remote live people are here. We should go yeah. see those guys maybe afterwards. Definitely. Well, they get some extra team. I love to see that. That's like NASA or something with screens everywhere yeah. and things going on. That's giant. We just did filming there last week, and it is remarkable how many screens they've got going. <laughs> <laughs> and also joining us today, we have Ryan Chapman. Ryan, welcome to the show again. Thanks, Jim. That's good to be back. It's good to see you guys. I just got back myself down in Brazil for a little while. So good to get back to Houston and good to be with you again. Yeah, it's nice to be all in the same room, right? Yeah. So let's run a little recap on ILX for last time, because that's, that's what we were talking about. And you guys don't know this. I didn't tell you about this ahead of time, but that conversation in that episode was very instrumental. And you'll see some of those stats and things pulled out in an upcoming editorial for World All. Yeah, because we were talking about reserves and reserve replacement and stuff. And so, yeah, I was like, hey, we just did a podcast on that. You didn't get the transcript of this. And he's like, what? He listened to the whole thing. He was like, yeah, that's great, man. It's good stuff. Awesome. Yeah, yeah. So that's good. But so give us a little recap. Do you remember? It seems like that was a long time ago, doesn't it? I think it was about what, a month ago that we recorded that? No, that's not not too bad, right? So the last episode has... If you're listening in sequence, you know, you would have just listened to it. But the last episode was really about reserves recovery replacement. Mm-hmm. And the fact that the industry is facing a bit of an issue that we, you know, if you look at trying to remember the numbers here that Yunjan was discussing, but if you look at overall reserves replacement ratio, it was like one in two barrels last year. And it's one in four if you only look at conventional resources. So when we're looking forward to the, you know, to the demand that's going to happen over, let's say, the next 10 or 20 years, we're not replacing enough reserves to be able to keep up with it. Right. And that's really in any you know, transition scenario. We all understand that the demand won't grow at the rate that it has you know, in the past, but demand for oil and gas, even in the net zero scenarios, will be flat or increasing. So you know, we still need to replace those reserves. What we discussed a little bit with Gunjan last time was that One of the ways that we see operators doing that is by infrastructure-led or near-field exploration because it has a lower capital intensity, right? If you can tie something back to somewhere where you already have existing infrastructure, it's got a lower capital intensity, and it also, in a lot of cases, has a lower carbon per barrel. That's kind of what we discussed in the last episode. Yeah, learn that acronym, ILX, important. (laughs) And that leads us to our guest today, Mohamed El-Tuki, who is an expert in ILX, right, Mohamed? Sort of, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. All right, Mohamed, welcome to the show. And you're the Global Chief Explorationist. But tell us a little bit about that, what you do here, and how you got to that position here at Schlumberger. Thanks a lot, Jim. It's a pleasure to be with Ryan and Hunter as well today. To start with, 
I started my career maybe like more than 30 years ago with Shell. For a very long time, I worked with Shell International for many, many years, out of which actually I was based in Houston for about 15 years. Working with Shell was really, say, was fantastic because I did have opportunity to touch upon exploration, appraisal, development, unconventional, conventional resources. So it was really a big journey with Shell. After which, I joined Schlumberger. And since I joined Schlumberger, Schlumberger put a lot of focus on exploration, put a lot of focus on bringing a lot of integration. And the topic you are discussing today is really close to everybody's heart, whether working at Shell or working in Schlumberger, it's extremely interesting topic. And what Ryan said is absolutely right. We cannot replace 100% of our reserve if we continue to focus on backyard exploration. I'm introducing a new term now. Or, <laughs> what, or, backyard exploration, yeah. BYX, that's yeah, a new yeah. one, right? I'm, <laughs> I'm just introducing a new more terminology or near field. I think one of the key elements actually, Ryan, if you continue to focus on near field exploration is with time, you will have more water, you will have more emission, you will also have old aging infrastructure and maybe lack of capacity as well. So you can do it for certain time frame. And when industry went back to backyard exploration or infrastructure-led exploration, this was during certain periods of time where the capital was not there, the investment level was very low, and they just like to continue drilling wells and maybe discovering 50 million barrels or so. This is really, say, the sort of discoveries you would expect with near-field exploration. Lately, oil companies, although they have been focused on infrastructure-led exploration for quite some time since the COVID and maybe a little bit before COVID even, they started thinking about, say, how can they replace reserve? How can they secure energy for the future? Because right. again... I think we shouldn't think only about countries who are producing, say, a lot of hydrocarbon like U.S., like Saudi Arabia. We should think about Africa. Mm. We should think about Asia. A lot of countries, they produce almost close to nothing. Right. Let's say India, for example, very, very limited production. So securing energy supply for the future is really very critical for the entire world. And in my view... I don't believe this will be done through infrastructure-led exploration. Oh, good, because that was my question. I mean, it seems to me that ILX is something you can do. I mean, it's easy, it's low cost, but you're not finding big reserves and, you know, demand keeps increasing, right? So you don't think that ILX will be able to keep up with demand, basically. That's absolutely right, Jim. I would also add that what we have seen over the last maybe few months, maybe this year particularly, mm -hmm. we have seen big moves from oil majors into greenfield areas, very new basins. And I can just point out that I just read yesterday that Exxon made an entry into upstream in India, for example. Oh, interesting. So yeah, that's, that's pretty cool. big move. Yeah. Countries like Sri Lanka, there is also, say, a lot of momentum from several operators to do exploration in Sri Lanka. 
say, apart from Guyana, which is already a very good success story, but also Exxon is pushing exploration in Guyana beyond Estabrook block, right, where right. they made a series of discoveries. They are actually pushing it even in a deeper water. To tell Apache, they are following up also with the same trend in Suriname, and other companies are exploring also northern part, deeper water in Suriname as well. Say, talking about Latin America, talking about those places are really very, very interesting. But if I talk about Namibia particularly, with two key discoveries which were made this year, by one by Shell, one by Total in Namibia, those are also, say, in completely new area, absolutely no infrastructure and more than 2,000 of water dips. And as a follow-up, all companies now are looking at few trends which are very similar to Namibia, like there is a well being drilled now by Shell in Sao Tome, just opposite to Nigeria. Mm-hmm. And there is also very intense, say, look, evaluation, seismic activities in preparation for exploration campaigns in Uruguay, southern bar, extreme southern part of Brazil, which is called Palatas Basin. Mm. So again, I think I'm just lighting a few areas where companies are doing, although they are doing infrastructure-led or backyard exploration, they are also stepping out because they realize that it is not possible to replace reserve just by focusing on infrastructure-led exploration. Right. So, Mohammed, interestingly enough, I was reading this morning that ENI had a gas discovery in Cyprus as well. I thought about that when you mentioned, you know, countries that don't have, you know, like Namibia, there's absolutely no infrastructure for gas. I think Cyprus as well, they, they don't have any production. It makes me wonder how much of that is driven by energy security, as you mentioned earlier, right? You know, these places in the world that need to make sure they have affordable energy close to them. Yeah. You know, you touched upon actually very important area in Cyprus. Exxon, they made the discovery early this year. Mm-hmm. ENI is making another discovery. Actually, Exxon is following up their discovery with very big and a new seismic campaign in Cyprus as well. So this corridor, Cyprus, no infrastructure whatsoever so far. Say quite, say maybe three, four good discoveries have been made, but no infrastructure. Mm. Right. So, so this triangle between Israel, Cyprus, and Egypt this is also, say, the whole world is looking at this triangle as, say, energy security for Europe. Mm. So exporting energy, gas particularly for Europe. So again, I think we are talking about very well-developed areas, for example, but within you, geopolitical changes between Russia, Ukraine, and all these kind of, say, movements, there is also, say, very strong block, even in UK, they stopped all the bid rounds, but then they announced gas bid rounds. Ah. So gas bid rounds looking for exploration, not looking for near field right. development. So there are also say, and now after a couple of years of focusing, mainly focusing on backyard exploration, and Ryan said it very, very nicely, like say, last two years had been extremely bad in reserve replacement, I would say, Maybe 2021 was the worst for the entire industry for about 50 years. Wow. In terms of reserve replacement. So now everybody is looking a bit wider for, in some cases, really greenfield exploration. The other basin also I would like to point out to in Australia, 
Otway Basin in the southern part of Australia. That's also one of the basins which, say, very new seismic campaign have been done. A follow-up campaign will be done very soon. And also, a lot of operators are looking at it. That's not really to ignore the carbon emission or the commitment, say, to green energy. This is just balancing energy supply with CO2 emission and the commitment to green energy. Oh, absolutely. We covered that a little bit in the last episode because 80% of the energy, more or less up and down 1%, comes from oil and gas. And so you have to maintain that even as you add green energy on top of it, right, to keep up with the increases. But, you know, this whole idea about, okay, that's great. Now we've been doing backyard exploration We realize that's not going to keep the pace, but we just didn't have the money to do it. Now, all of a sudden, okay, now we need energy security. We see what's happening in Europe, energy prices everywhere through the roof, right? And so we're going to look out further. But isn't one of the problems with this is it seems like it takes a long time, right? Cyprus. Cyprus is a fine example. When did those blocks go out? I mean, that was a long time ago, right? And they've been talking about like discoveries and infrastructure for, it seems like for at least seven years, right? I mean, hasn't it been like seven years already? So, I mean, when somebody makes a discovery and the time to bring it online, that's a big gap. I mean, like we need the energy today, right? We don't need the energy five years down the road, right? Today is when prices are through the roof and when Russia's cutting off gas supply to Europe and crazy things like that, right? Yeah, I think that's interesting, Jim, that you mentioned the gap between making a discovery and first production, right? which is really, it can be pretty long in some cases. But i give you an example from Egypt, for example, say, Zohar discovery, about 15, 20 TCF of gas, very large discovery by ENI in a very deep water in Egypt. The first production was less than three years wow, after making quick, the discovery. Yeah. This was really very unique, very, say, good example in which the company elected to adopt early production facilities and it was highly accelerated because of, say, political situation, the market demand, a lot of other elements. So there are ways to accelerate production if you have to. But it comes at cost as well. Like what you mentioned, energy cost is skyrocketing over the last few months specifically because of the political situation. But overall, the, say, seeing oil companies like ENI, like Exxon, drilling wells in very deep water in completely new exploration areas like Cyprus, like pushing the envelope in a very deep water in Guyana, in a different basin, looking at Suriname, looking at very, very greenfield area like Palatas Basin in Brazil or Uruguay, this gives you indication that backyard exploration is good, but it needs to be complemented with big volumes, which, say, will not come from backyard exploration or infrastructure-led exploration. Right. And so what do you think the breakdown is? You seem to have a really good grasp of what's going on around the world. What's the percentage breakdown of, like, ILX versus, like, Greenfield things going on? Is it, I don't know. Yeah, it's a very good question, Jim. But if I think loud, for example, this year, probably 
maybe more than 70% of the discovered volume is coming from Greenfield. Two, ah, wow, two okay. large discoveries are coming from Namibia. One by Shell and the other one by Total. Some discoveries are coming from also, say, Guyana, from Exxon. So again, I think your question actually is taking me to think about, say, what are the key changes in exploration landscape moving forward? And what I have seen over the last couple of years that there are some polarization of activities. So instead of oil companies operating in 15 different basins, they mm -hmm. tended to operate in maybe five ah, rather than 15. Yeah. And the key element you can see actually the CAPEX of the oil companies are flowing in a certain places where they can assure their investors that they will make big discoveries, they will replace the reserve. Because again, I think we need to think about, say, what is the lifetime for the biggest operator like Exxon, for example, if they do nothing with the current right. reserve? It's not going to be very long. I don't like to mention any numbers, but 15 years are pretty long. Right. That's order of magnitude. Some very large operators, they have maybe like eight years of, say, production at the same rate if they do nothing moving forward. Wow. So their whole life, the company's very existence depends on adding those reserves. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Exactly. And, you know, at certain stage, companies would focus on cash flow. Companies would focus on just, say, controlling cost. But at the end of the day, they also would think about, say, adding energy mix, some wind, some solar, a lot of other activities. But the cash stream for most of the small and the big or large operators is coming from oil and gas still today. Of course. This is yeah. really the key element. And that's an interesting, you know, interesting point, Mohammed. one that we've discussed quite a bit internally is that the reservoir, you know, the title of the podcast is The Reservoir. The reservoir is literally going to fuel the energy transition. That's where the money's going to come from. You know, you look at a lot of these big companies, they are investing, you know, their capex into, you know, new energy sources, and that money's coming from, you know, traditional operations, right? And so the, the reservoir will fuel, you know, the transition moving forward for sure. It's absolutely right, Ryan, because again, I think if you think about, say, cash flow, or revenue coming from, say, any CCS project, cash flow coming from solar, cash flow coming from wind, and profitability coming from any of those projects is very, very limited. Actually, it needs a support from the government. It needs also money coming from oil and gas. The bottom line, for quite some time, you would need the cash flow coming from production in order to fund energy transition. But this is not the only critical elements. I think more critical is energy security. For not energy security for US or for Europe, because they can afford buying, say, expensive energy. Some countries, they can afford it. But thinking about what the world start actually talking about, they call it North and South divide. Yeah. And this is really very bad terminology. I wouldn't really like to use it. <laughs> but the reality is the northern part of the world, they have access to good clean energy and it's getting cleaner and it's getting better and it's getting greener. But the southern part, like the entire Africa, 
if you think about say no access to gas at all no access to electricity you will find considerable slice of the society have very limited access to energy whether you call it clean or it's not very clean they don't have access to energy so those part of the world they like to have access to energy Absolutely. And they don't care if it's green or what. I mean, they'll start, you know, chopping down forest and making charcoal or they'll start using, you know, coal out of the ground to fuel. They'll use whatever they can because energy leads to economic success. I mean, that's the bottom line, right? If you have energy, you can do things that'll make your country, your village, your family economically successful. And so everybody wants that. And so, you know, it's quite interesting because I don't know. I assume somewhere up there that, you know, the developed countries look around the world and, and are planning for that, right? How can we help Africa instead of switching over to coal, you know, use more green energy? They don't have the money to fund that, right? But we have the money to help them fund it, right? So hopefully, you know, somebody's thinking about that. But, but one last question before we let you go. What about the future success in exploration and wells. You know, one of the things that we talked about last time that I thought was quite funny because it, it struck me as odd was the number of dry wells that people drill, right? That come up or they don't produce to the capacity that what they were expected to produce to. And I was like, how in this day and age with all of our technology, does that still happen? I mean, you know, think anybody, nobody would put a bit in the ground unless they knew it was going to pay off, right? Yeah. yeah, what we were discussing, to, to put a finer point on it, Mohammed, is really that the exploration success rate has been dropping successively year on year, I don't know, for let's say like the past 10 years. So, and Jim was just mind blown that, yeah. you know, as we get better with data acquisition, you know, and the computing power and we understand, you know, geoscience better, why would the exploration success rate be going in the wrong direction? You were probably one of the best people to help us understand that. Interesting question, Jim and Ryan. I think... What you need to think about it is, say, although we have moved a very long way with supercomputers and clouds and, say, new seismic acquisition techniques and imaging techniques and everything else, but what you need to think about when you step into a new basin, for example, you use all the tools, but you don't have all the keys. What you need to do you need to acquire data, calibrate yourself, and make success. I give you an example. Say, before the Guyana discovery, the first one was made by Exxon, there was maybe like, I would say, at least like 15 wells being drilled along the same trend. Not in Guyana, necessarily, but it started from French Guyana, just next right to next Brazil. Door, yeah. Yeah. yeah, so in French Guyana, say, few drilling campaigns, like two drilling campaigns by two operators, they discovered some hydrocarbon, not commercial. They moved into drilling a few wells in Suriname. But what Exxon have done, or other operators also have done in Guyana and Suriname, they have taken all the data, the collected data, used all the available technologies, and they calibrated themselves, and then they set themselves for a success. For example, also another example which is extremely interesting, Total made a discovery in South Africa. And they got very good data set. They drilled a few appraisals, good discovery, really good gas discovery in South Africa. With their calibration, with their knowledge, 
they were able to move to Namibia and make a completely new discovery in a very new area by calibrating themselves. And the first shot was a discovery because wow. they have calibration data set. And Shell followed the same trend in Namibia as well. So the whole idea is about how much data you have got to calibrate yourself. Interesting. And it's applicable in the region. Like it doesn't have to be right in that spot. It could be from your experience just next door or some other place. All of that data goes into making your future explorations more successful. I would go even further, Jim, in terms of data calibration. Say why, for example, some companies are better in exploration and making more discover their success rate is better than others. You do have a global database mm -hmm. for all the basins. So when you identify a reservoir, for example, and I think Ryan is the best person to talk about, say, about using what technology in what reservoir, for example, when it comes to measurements. When you identify a specific reservoir, you look at this reservoir all the way from Australia to Guyana or to Colombia. All those types of the reservoir, you put them in one bucket. And then you started focusing on the basin you are in, then you, so you put all the basins together first, then you move into a single basin, then you start to focusing on what kind of prospect or say specific area you like to drill. So calibration is really the key. So ah. That's really the bottom line. And Mohammed, when you're doing that type of calibration, what kind of information do you need to put together? You know, what kind of, I suppose you have some uncertainties, you know, I mean, so let's say Total drilled this well in South Africa, and they look you know, forward to Namibia. And I don't know if anybody else ever, I imagine somebody else may have tried to drill there before. I don't, I don't know if we know, but you know, they, they look forward and there's some uncertainties they were going to try to resolve before they go and drill that first well and hit that success. So what kind of uncertainties were they trying to resolve and what, what kind of data do you need to make sure that you, you have that type of level of success? Because one of the things that we mentioned to, to Jim was when we looked at the success rate amongst operators, one of the things that stuck out to us was the technology adopters tended to be a lot better. Right. I don't know if it's a huge surprise, but I would also like to just understand more, you know, and I'm sure the audience would, what kind of uncertainties you need to resolve? What kind of data do you need to resolve those uncertainties so you can have those types of success? It's all really about collecting very good logs. Mm -hmm. If you have production test or if you can run production or pressure measurement in your reservoirs, putting all this reservoir info together and translate it into rock physics. Hmm. Try to really say, understand what kind of physics in terms of fluids and also rocks. And if you can calibrate those rocks with the seismic data, which means also you need to have very good, reliable seismic data as well. If you can calibrate both, then you have ability to say this reservoir would have this type of porosity, this type of fluid fill, and this, once you know that, you can map the aerial extent of the reservoir based on good seismic data, and you can calculate your volume and assess your risk. So there is one critical element which we use always in exploration in places like, on blaze, particularly like Namibia, like Guyana, we add to the prospect risking either uplift or downgrade. And this type of calibration, log data, seismic data, rock physics, this type of calibration, it's either adding uplift to your probability of success, increasing it, 
or downgrading the probability of success. Oh, wow. This way, you would be able, we call it, say, post or probability of success polarization. Hmm. And that would explain why, Ryan, like we were talking about, that the people who adopt the technology and have the power to integrate large data sets and to look at these things, why they would be more successful than just your average company out there using some local seismic from the global set, right? As opposed to calibrating it specifically for themselves. Yeah, it's really focus on global aspects, focus on, say, understanding how specific play success in one patient versus the other and what are the key success criteria for each play. Because, for example, if you go to Gulf states, you have mostly the large reservoirs are carbonates. Those have very specific criteria and they need specific looking tools, specific measurements. In seismic also, you need to focus on different aspects. If you go to, for example, most of the recent plays in Namibia, in Guyana, those are plastics, very different reservoir sets. But you can find analogs on a global scale. So your ability mm. to integrate, first of all, integrate the data from well logs to understanding the rocks, physical rock data, understanding pressure measurements, and understanding if you have production tests, if you have any additional data, you put everything together. So integration first, and then looking at global aspects, because it's really very important also not to focus on finding hydrocarbon. It's focusing on economic success, not technical success. Right, yeah. And in many places, we have, if you look actually at technical success rate, it's pretty decent. It's actually quite good. But if you look at economic success rate, that's where the challenges will come. This is where also say, putting all the tools together, putting very strong calibration, because back then in 1990s, when we started exploring deep water in the Gulf of Mexico here, a lot of tools were not available, but reservoir calibration was really the key. We were able to say, for example, if you find this reservoir with this kind of characteristics, your flow rate is going to be 10,000 barrels a day or 20,000 barrels a day. Wow, that's specific. Wow, that's great. Yeah. So that's specific. And this is based on drilling mini wells and actually producing mm -hmm. the reservoir and calibrating it. Yeah. And what you mentioned there was the difference between being successful in finding the hydrocarbons because, you know, the reservoir looks like it's going to have some and commercial success, which are these big finds. Right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I think well, that's really very critical. So, so just for the audience to give the definition here is a technical success means that the well's not dry, that it has hydrocarbon. Right. right. But it might not be a commercial success because the volume might not be there. The permeability might not be there to flow enough. You might have those things, but it might not be close enough to the infrastructure to justify building the infrastructure. And right. That, that's one of the conversations that Muhammad and I had preparing for the episode was, you know, you, you have this trend in the infrastructure-led exploration because it's CapEx light. But then, you know, really in between the last episode and now, they've, you know, you, you heard there's been quite a few large discoveries that have been announced. And there's probably, you know, room for looking at it as type of a balanced scorecard approach. You know, you need to see, you know, are you close to infrastructure? You know, what do your volumes look like? What is your flow potential? Where are you going to export it? And the company is going to have to weigh up all of those things to decide whether or not it's, you know, economically viable or it's a commercial, going to be a commercial success. It's not. It's not as simple as just finding oil, which, you know, you think, or gas, which you think maybe it would be. 
Yeah. Before we let you go, one more question, and you don't have to answer this. So, but for you and the projects you've been involved in, what's your commercial success rate? Extremely interesting question, <laughs> Shane, because, you know, a lot of wills also you work on and you mature prospects. You never see them drilled except after maybe 10 years or so. Ah, but, okay. but overall, if I have, say, 25% success rate, I will be very happy. Really? 25% economic success economic rate, success rate yeah. is... It's incredible what you can make in terms of, say, return on investment. Yeah. 25% economic success rate. That's it, interesting it, because the stats in my mind then are more... It's more baseball-esque, right? Yeah. Commercial successes don't happen as frequently. They're the ones we hear about in the news, yeah. right? Because that's what everybody wants to talk about. But rarely do you hear about like, oh, it was good, but it just wasn't good enough. Nobody's going to talk about that in the news, right? <laughs> so, so that's it. Well, yeah. Muhammad, thank you so much. Hunter, Ryan, you guys got any more questions for Muhammad? Questions? No, but I wanted to give a bit of a preview over what we're going to talk about based on the conversation we had today and the upcoming episodes. Yeah, right? so, for sure. Mohammed, I mean, he hit on a few key aspects that we're now going to dive deeper into, right? He hit on the, the need for good seismic. We now have the ability to acquire good seismic in development fields without stopping production, which is, you know, five years ago, you couldn't do that. Three years ago, you couldn't do that. We're going to have some people come on the show or the podcast to talk about rocks and fluid, right? Nice. That's it. So we're going to talk about seismic. So what's the size? You know, talk about the rocks. Can they move the fluid? And then, you know, the fluid itself. I think later we'll even, you know, I was thinking about it, Hunter, we'll get Oliver on to talk about, you know, reservoir fluid geodynamics, right? Mm -hmm. That's a, there's a whole science oh, that would around be interesting. How, how fluids move in time. So I think that Muhammad set us up really well to now dive in deeper on some of these areas of uncertainty that he's highlighted. And then we'll get some other experts on the next podcast and we'll keep digging. You know? Excellent. Well, thank you very much, Mohammed. That was excellent. Thanks good a lot. setup, good overview for us. And Ryan, great seeing you face to face, you know, and being on and Hunter, my silent partner. You didn't <laughs> what? Nah, just taking tons of show notes here. This is a fantastic <laughs> episode. Certainly learned a lot from you, Mohammed. Yeah, this is this is fantastic. I didn't mention it at the top, but I'm not a technical guy at all, right? And so the way I learn things is by talking to people, you know, like we're doing today. And yes, absolutely educational. And all of these topics coming up sound absolutely fascinating to me because I don't know about those. I know, you know, 30,000 foot view, but I don't know deep down. So thank you very much, Muhammad. And thanks everybody for listening. Be sure to subscribe, check out the show notes. Hunter's been taking copious notes. So there must be a lot of show notes there for you. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> All right. Thank you, everyone. Thanks a lot. Huh? Thank you. Yep. Thank you. We'll see you next time. Bye. Thanks for listening to today's show. Email your comments, questions, and suggestions to the Reservoir Podcast at worldoil.com.